Okay, if you want to um, open up your Bibles, we're going to be uh, again today in the book of 1 John. And we're going to be studying particularly verses 3 to 6. So if you get your Bibles open to that passage of Scripture, and we'll begin our study in a moment. Wonderful. Just a reminder for, for those of you who haven't been able to be with us on Sundays uh, any of the last few weeks, the messages are all recorded on our podcast and you can check that out. There's a link in the WhatsApp group to that. We've got a little SoundCloud podcast that you can subscribe to and you can listen back to the messages throughout the study of First John. Wonderful. Well, let's pray and then let's begin the word today. Father God, as we open up your word to us, we pray that we would be encouraged by it. We pray that Holy Spirit, that you would press upon our hearts the meaning of your word and that through your grace, you would give us the strength to be able to follow those commandments. We pray also, Lord, Uh, that as we open up the word that you would give me the strength to communicate that word as it is in scripture that you would help me uh, have the utterance to do that accurately and Lord that you would help me to pronounce your word as it is accurately with truth and with power Lord we pray that as we gather today under your word that we're built up into the living stones of the temple of God, that we are encouraged, Lord God, that we are built up in joy and in peace and in righteousness. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. So we're going to be from verse three to verse six today. We are in the second chapter of John's epistle. Um, So let's read that together. I have the English Standard Version. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Amen. Now, for the last few weeks, as I've mentioned, we've been walking through this first book, uh, sorry, this book of First John. It's a short kind of sermon-like epistle. It was written by John, most believe the Apostle John, to a group of house churches that are located in, in modern-day Turkey. And he's warning them against certain false teachings that were being spread by a group of people that we now know as the Gnostics. And he's encouraging them also in love, in faithfulness and in holiness. Now, already in this book, just in the first chapter and a bit, we've been brought to the dazzling beauty of God's holiness. We've learned the importance of having an apostolic profession of who Jesus is. We've seen Jesus both as our high priest and last Sunday as our propitiatory sacrifice. Thank you to Bucky, it was a fantastic message. 
Now, this week, my brothers and sisters, we're going to move on from considering that to considering the work that Christ has done in us. The last few weeks, we've been considering who Christ is, the work that he is doing right now in his high priestly duty, the work that he has done for us in his sacrifice on the cross. Now, we will consider the work that he's doing in us presently right now. We're going to be asking questions like this. What is it to live the Christian life? And how can we know if we really are living it? These are the primary questions that the Apostle John is going to be pressing on us in these three short verses. And these are questions that are going to lead us to consider the great doctrine of assurance. How many of you have heard of that doctrine of assurance? We're going to be asking questions like this. Is there an assurance of salvation? Can we know, and I mean really know, that we're saved? John seems to suggest in these three verses that that we can. And that this knowledge of the truth of our salvation is something that's actually important for us as believers. Assurance is simply this. It's to be assured of a fact. It's to have certainty about something. Having assurance about your faith is something that brings an immense amount of peace and security to us. I want to ask you today, are you assured of your salvation? Do you know that you know Christ? And if you do, then what makes you certain of that truth? How do you know that you are a Christian? These are important questions that we are asked to plumb the depths of by the apostles. Now there are some who might say, I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved because I've been baptized. Now, I understand why somebody might say that. That's that's a, a physical manifestation of something that's happened in their life, isn't it? It's an important sacrament. It's an important rite of passage for every Christian. And I believe it's essential that every Christian be baptized. But can it be used as the proof of our salvation? Is it baptism? physical bodily immersion in water that gives us the assurance of our salvation well all I would say is that I know a good few people who have been baptized into Christ and I'm sure that you do too who now living a life that gives the lie to their baptism there'll be many people who have been baptized, who on that great and terrible day of judgment will hear these words, away from me, I never knew you. On the other hand, somebody might say, well, I know that I'm a Christian because I had an encounter with God and I asked Jesus into my heart. The tragedy with this response, as Paul Washer so forcefully points out, is that this response that I had an encounter with God and as a result of which I asked Jesus into my heart. Paul Washer says this has become the litmus test for Christianity in the Western world. Now I'll tell you a story. One of my best friends in secondary school, we were very, very close for a number of years and I had been praying for him and hoping that he would join me uh, one summer at my favorite Bible week. We used to go every year to this Bible week and I encountered God every time we went. And my prayer was that he might come with me um, one summer. And I invited him along um, more in hope than in real knowledge that he would come. But he said yes. 
and he he uh, decided to join me. And uh, of course, I was hoping that he would get to meet God in the same powerful way that I did just a few years previous. Well, my prayers were answered in a really dramatic way. I remember one morning meeting uh, after the preacher had got down and invited people up for an altar call, my friend went forward for prayer. And after he was prayed for, he hit the deck. He went down in the Holy Spirit. It was powerful. He was writhing all over the place on the ground. He was laughing, crying, screaming. Something was clearly happening. In fact, it went on so long that the meeting closed down after about an hour and we had to lift him up bodily and carry him out of the auditorium, out into the open air. And he's a six foot plus guy, he was a big chap. So that took quite a lot of energy. We got him outside and even on a bench outside the auditorium, he was still just writhing, just under the power of something. So much so that a steward had to come and pray that whatever it was that he believed the Holy Spirit on him would lift his hand off so that he could go about his day. After he came to, uh, we chatted for hours. It was awesome. Have you ever had those experiences where one of your friends has come to faith and there's just that time when you can process it with them? You know, and you're talking about their journey to knowing Jesus and it's so special. We talked for hours about what had happened. We talked about his life. We talked about what had just happened in that meeting and how he hoped his life would change now that he'd invited Jesus into his life. And when we got back home to Wolverhampton, I encouraged him to come to church with me. And he actually used to come. He used to come along to a weekly home group that we had. Uh, It was fantastic. And um, I genuinely believed that he was beginning to follow Jesus. But sadly, he began soon enough to make excuses on a weekly basis to why he couldn't come to home group. And eventually, he, he stopped coming altogether. He drifted further and further away from me and from other Christians. And eventually, uh, he began to pursue a homosexual lifestyle and deny um, church, deny God, deny Christ, uh, the same God who he'd had an experience with. It was very confusing. And I truly hope that one day uh, he really does come to know God. I, I don't know for sure what happened in those meetings, but I do know that if it was truly an encounter with the living God, it would bear fruit unto righteousness. I don't know what happened. I don't know whether the Lord might draw him again someday, and I really hope he does. But what is sure to me is that our decision to choose Jesus and say, I'm inviting you into my heart at a meeting or a gathering isn't necessarily proof of our Christianity, nor is a seemingly supernatural experience proof of our salvation. Do supernatural experiences happen? Yes. Yes, they do. I have witness of that, and I'm sure you do too. I've had many a supernatural encounter with God, but it's not what I would point to as the proof of my salvation. Because we all know people who claim to have had the most incredible encounters with God who are either no longer walking with God or whose lifestyles aren't very godly. 
In fact, in my years of pastoring, I've had many people tell me that Jesus has shown up in their room and spoken to them face to face. But yet they told me in the same breath that he'd called them out of church. Now, if Jesus shed his own blood to purchase the church, is he really going to tell somebody they don't need to go? That seems very contradictory to me. And so I don't put too much stock in those supernatural encounters. I certainly wouldn't say that it's the proof of my faith. I wouldn't say that it gives me the assurance of my faith. So if our baptism doesn't provide us with full assurance, and if the fact that we once invited Jesus into our heart doesn't give us assurance either, then what on earth does? How can we know that we're saved? Well, John would say this, if we keep his commandments. If his commandments we are keeping. That's literally the verb in the Greek. It's a present tense verb. It has a continuous sense to it. The proof that we truly come to know Jesus is that we are keeping his commandments. That's our assurance. That's how we know that our relationship with Jesus is the real deal. A real living faith always bears fruit. It bears fruit unto obedience. There's a walking out of what we truly believe. Our keeping of Jesus' commandments, understand me here, isn't what saves us. It's not the walking out of Jesus' word that actually justifies us with God. But it is what reveals that we actually have been saved at all. If we aren't presently in the now being shaped according to the example set by Jesus, then that isn't a good sign. As I say, the verb to keep, which is teromen in the Greek, has a sense of continuation. It's a present verb that's used here. John always uses that particular verb when he's talking about keeping Jesus' commandments. And it's got this sense of guarding as well. That verb is used also to talk about guarding something. Are the words of God in your Bible, are they something that you guard with your life? Are they something that you treasure? Do you form your life according to his commandments? This is the assurance of your real salvation. There ought to be an active and daily conforming of our will to his will for our lives. Here's a quote from one biblical commentator. It says, So while personal holiness is not the basis of our salvation, it is the clearest assurance of our salvation. The converted slave trader John Newton said of himself, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I once was. And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. So what are the commandments then that John's referring to? Is it the law? Are we being asked here that once we come to Christ that we now have got to fulfill the law? Well, thanks be to God, no. <laughs> That's not what's being referred to actually. Um, John's not refer referring to the Mosaic law because when he does refer to the Mosaic law, he actually uses a different Greek word. He always uses one particular word to refer to the Mosaic law and a different word to refer to the commandments of God. It's a different thing. So what we have in view here, what the commandments which John's talking about mean, 
is that actually the same commandments that he writes about in the 15th chapter of his gospel in John 15 where Jesus tells his disciples doesn't he he says if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love there's this sense of Jesus inviting us into a journey of following him in his revealed commandments well what are these commandments well I think the venerable Bede how many of you have heard of Bede the uh, the, is it the history the ecclesiastical history of the English people the English nation thank you yes Uh, well worth a read Bede said this about keeping God's commandments the person who really knows God is the one who proves that he lives in his love by keeping his commandments and love is the sure sign that we know God we know that we're truly children of God when his love in us persuades us to pray even for our enemies as he himself did when he said father forgive them so it's love that is the fulfillment of these commandments if love is the fulfillment of the law as it says in Romans so to abide in God's love is to keep Christ's commandments and to keep to keep his commandments is to love God the two are fused together they're fused together they work together they're two sides of the same coin if we love God then there should be an obedience to his commandments in our life and what that obedience will look like is love when we're obeying the commandments of God there will be a love that is active and present in our life first towards God and then towards his sons and daughters towards the church John actually clarifies uh, what his what these commandments mean in in verse 3 later in uh, sorry in chapter 3 later on in this same book it says here uh, chapter 3 verse 23 and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us so through obedience to God's word and to scripture we show that we know God to be obedient to God's word not just in the sense that we love one another but that we believe what the Bible says about Jesus we talked about that in the first week that we studied this book do you remember we talked about the apostolic witness of who Jesus is that we have seen him that we know him that we've touched him with our hands we've handled concerning the word of truth and this Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours but the sins of the whole world that's the Jesus we proclaim that's the Jesus we believe we don't believe in some moralistic philosopher who came to teach us good things but couldn't actually save us from our sins neither do we believe in the Islamic Jesus who was a prophet who came on behalf of Allah but actually didn't ultimately die on the cross and cannot justify us before Allah that's why the Muslim can have no assurance of their faith as somebody who's read the Quran all I see there is this sort of encouragement to obey commandments but without any assurance that that following of the commandments will justify one with the God of Islam all that leaves you with is a feeling of panic stress striving unease 
fear. Whereas for the Christian, our obedience to God's commandments actually flows from not striving and a need to be resolved and need to be reconciled with God, but from our acceptance and our reconciliation with God. It's, it's, it's flipped up on its head. It's very different. So there are actually, in verse 5, we, we read that this love begins to be perfected in us. That this love of God is perfected in us, found in verse, verse 5. That as we love God, this love is perfected in us. And there are actually varying views on what is meant by the phrase, the love of God, found in verse 5. Some take it to mean God's love to us. That God's love to us is perfected in us. Others take it to mean our love to God. So our love towards God is perfected as we obey his commandments. As we love him and we love, love others. Our love towards God is perfected. And still others take it to mean in a substantive sense. Like a kind of a godly love is perfected in us. Now I know this might all seem kind of just pointless and nitpicky but... It's really cool and I want to show you why it's important that we see what this verse actually is talking about because it will encourage us and help us see what's happening as we follow Jesus, our example. Now most, the majority of scholars believe it actually does mean our love towards God which is not the way I would have thought of it but in the original language it's possible to read it that way meaning that over time as we love God as we keep his commandments and are constantly keeping his commandments to love him and to love others our love towards God is perfected in us John Gill says this here it is to be understood not actively but passively of the love wherewith God is loved by his people and intends not the absolute perfection of it in them in whom it often waxes cold and is left or fervor, it is a, uh, fervor of it is abated, but the sincerity and reality of it. For by the keeping of the word of God, both his truths and his ordinances, it is clearly seen that their love to him is without dissimulation and is not in tongue only, but in deed and in truth. Whichever way we look at it, we see that our Christian faith is evidenced by a real love of God which is being perfected and this love is born out of obedience to his word and a conforming of our life to the example set by Jesus. I've often struggled with this idea of love being perfected in me because I'm not always sure what I should be looking for. Sometimes I think maybe it's supposed to be this kind of gooey, sentimental, kind of wishful obsession. But in fact, quite often when the old theological greats of church history have talked about love, they've used another word to describe it. I don't know if you realize this, but they've talked about charity. Have you ever connected those two words together, love and charity? I think it's an interesting comparison because charity does what it gives of itself without any interest in returning, having something in return. And that's essentially a part of what love is, isn't it? There's a giving of oneself to someone who cannot ultimately 
give back in the same way that you have given to them. And I think that's an interesting one. In fact, I was listening to a, a sermon earlier this week and this particular pastor was talking about a friend of his who had been with him at seminary. And this friend of his had become disillusioned with his time at Bible college. He'd become frustrated and he was on the verge of leaving. In fact, they were sat around the dinner table uh, during mealtime and he was explaining to his friends how he'd had it with Bible college. He was done, he was ready to leave. He said, you know what? I did a better job of being a Christian before I came to this accursed place and I'm gonna, th- I'm gonna jack it in, I'm gonna go home and when I'm at home, I'm gonna reignite my prayer life. I'm gonna have time with the Lord again. He said, all I do here is I study, study, study. And it just so happened that sat on the end of the table was a visiting lecturer. And this visiting lecturer turned around and said, excuse me, son, do you mind if I just share something with you? And the guy said, oh, yeah, sure, be my guest. And the visiting lecturer turned to him and said, can I just ask you, what are you doing during these 10 hours of study? And he said, well, I'm studying theology, I'm studying Greek, I'm studying Hebrew, and I'm writing essays, I'm studying. And he said, and why? Why are you studying? He said, well, of course, because I want to become a pastor. I want to know more about God so that I can teach others about his word. And he said, and what's the frustration? And the young man said, well, after 10 hours of studying all day, the only thing I want to do when I get back to my room is go to bed. I'm tired. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to to worship the Lord and sing to him in that place of secrecy and and therefore my relationship with God has died a death. My love of God is not being born out in my prayer times. And the lecturer looked at him and said wryly, you know what the problem is don't you? He said, you've got Greek thinking. And the, the young man said, I have no idea what you mean. What do you mean I've got Greek thinking? He said, well the Greeks had this way of thinking whereby everything in the natural world, everything that's been created, everything practical, physical, material, is actually broken. It's wrong. It's just manifestly bad. And the only things that are good are those things which are immaterial, unseen, of the spirit realm. And he said, and sometimes that Greek thinking has been infused into the Christian way of thinking, whereby as Christians, we often think that the only things that we do that could ever be real worship are those things that are done in the spirit. They're those things that are done when we're crying out to the Lord and there's emotion and there's something happening that's kind of indistinguishable. We don't really understand it, but it's something spiritual that's happening. And he said, and the problem is, is that we actually devalue things like study, things like reading, and we call them unspiritual. We call that work, but it's not worship. And he said the problem is that's not the way that God speaks about it in the Bible. That's not a fully biblical view of what love towards God actually looks like. And the lecturer said, you know what? He said after 12 hours a day of teaching and studying, he said, I go home, and I go to bed. Sometimes I I feel too tired to pray, but he said, you know what, I understand that what I've done that day is I've loved the Lord with my mind. I've spent time with him. I have lived in his presence. 
I have come to know him more. And there is a type of devotion that we need, I think, to own again as a church that looks like study. And let's not write that off as being somehow less than the other disciplines and practices of our Christian life. We are loving God with our minds as well as in the secret place. Calvin said this as well. He said, he now defines what a true keeping of God's law is. It is to love God. He said this passage here in verse 5 is incorrectly explained by those who understand that they somehow please the true God by keeping his word. Rather take this as its meaning. To love God in the, in the sincerity of heart is to keep his commandments. So when we're loving God either through prayer, through worship in the secret place, or by studying, by reading his word, by learning more about him through theology, we are keeping his commandments. We are loving God. So don't beat yourself up about your devotional life. Remember, let's not have too much Greek thinking going on in our lives. One thing that I think is often a sticking point, though, for new believers is this. They look at the Christian world amongst the many people who say that they believe in God and even that they're Christians and there seem to be a thousand different interpretations of what keeping God's commandments actually looks like. Well, one question that dogs new believers is this, why is it that so many Christians disagree on so many things? When they see, for example, what's happening in the Church of England today as the Archbishop, God bless him, vainly attempts to try and unite a church that's broken and divided over the issue of sexuality. How is it that Christians who read the same Bible could come to radically different perspectives about the views it holds? Well, I think here lies the danger of knowing about God but not truly knowing God. It's possible, isn't it, to gain an extraordinary volume of knowledge about the Bible, about theology, about who Jesus is, about the Hebrew and Greek languages, and yet still not know God. It's possible to so delude yourself that on one hand you say you love God, but on the other hand, you hate his commandments. So much so that you have to twist and chew up and obfuscate the scriptures to suit your view. To the point that it isn't God that you love, but it's yourself. I saw this at university when I studied theology. People who knew far more than I did about theology, about the way the Bible was written, but who hated God. It's possible to know lots of things about God, but not know God. St. Augustine said this, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel that you believe, but yourself. To attempt to change, reimagine, or blur God's word, or ignore large portions of God's word, and only preach the bits you like, is actually to hate God. It's to hate him, not to love him. 
you know what? Give me someone who hates God's word for what it is and rejects him wholeheartedly. Give me somebody like that over somebody who says they love him but who denies his word and tries to change it every time. When I meet somebody on the streets, I'd far prefer talk to somebody who's an atheist who absolutely hates the word of God but at least they know what it says. At least they're honest that it is a holy God who hates sin rather than somebody who says they're a Christian but winks at sin. The proof that someone's truly a Christian is not whether they say they are. Is it? I know lots of people who say they're Christians but their lifestyle tells a different story. The proof that someone is a Christian and that they love God is whether they love God in his word, whether they love his commandments and whether they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And as I said earlier, we're not talking about a gooey, sentimental feelings type of love here, but actually in practice, that there's a giving of themselves, there's giving of time, giving of resources, giving of prayer for brothers and sisters in need. And as the love of God is perfected in us, our love towards God grows. And their knowledge of God's love is revealed through our acts of charity and love towards brothers and sisters in Christ. Sean Douglas O'Connell said, this should be the sign by which they should know whether they're true Christians or not. Where Christ dwells through faith, there he makes that person conform to him. That is, he makes him humble, gentle and ready to help his neighbour in any need. So if someone's giving it the big one about how much theology they know or how many amazing revelations they've got or when God last spoke to them and Jesus showed up in their room but you don't get a whiff of love about them, you've got cause to doubt whether they really do know God. Since John says in verse 6 that those who abide in Christ ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. That's quite heavy, isn't it? That we as Christians, if we profess to know Jesus Christ that we ought to walk and another way of using that phrase in the Greek is to live as Jesus lived do we live as Jesus lived I want to anticipate the question how can anybody live as Jesus lived how could anybody walk like Jesus walked is John expecting that right now as a church in order to test our faith we could walk right over to the canal and stride right across it Is that what John's expecting? That in walking like Jesus, we're going to be able to walk on water? I've certainly heard it preached that way. In fact, I think I perhaps have even preached it that way. That to walk like Jesus is to walk in his supernatural signs and wonders. And that unless we walk in these miraculous signs and wonders, we don't truly know God. I know I've said before, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And I've personally seen God move supernaturally in and through my life. But that's not what John is talking about here. He's not talking about walking in Jesus' supernatural signs and wonders. To insert that particular meaning is actually to read our own preferences into the text, which is something, as you know, is a big no-no for pastors. Luther said this, It is not Christ's walking on the sea, but his ordinary walk we are called on to imitate. Or Augustine said this, Therefore, he who says that he abides in him ought to himself walk as he walked. How, brothers? What, advo- what, advice, what advice is he giving us? 
He who says that he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought to himself walk as he walked. Is he perhaps giving us this advice that we walk on the sea? Far from it. This then, that we walk in the way of justice. In what way? I've already mentioned it. He was fastened on the cross and was walking in this very way. It is the way of love. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So then, if you've learned to pray for your enemy, you walk in the way of the Lord, end quote. So two weeks ago, we preached Jesus the high priest. Last week, we preached Jesus the propitiation. It's a big word, isn't it? For our sins. And this week, we're preaching Jesus our great example. Though I understand what Luther meant by Christ's ordinary walk, I think we've all got to recognize that his ordinary walk is anything but ordinary. It's extraordinary, isn't it, when we consider how Jesus walked through his life. When we consider the example that he set for us in his self-denial, in the laying aside of all that he experienced in heaven when he was worshipped night and day, he laid that aside and took on flesh he denied himself he endured suffering there's something else that we're called to walk and follow in do we have an endurance for suffering i tell you it's one that i struggle with physical pain illness do those things afflict you too that's difficult isn't it perhaps when you're struggling with a physical or a mental ailment perhaps mental health is an issue and we're praying that God may heal it but sometimes he doesn't do it in the time frame that we expect and we're called to walk through the valley and endure that suffering that's something that you only learn in following Jesus Christ because my flesh sometimes hates it my flesh wants to be out of that valley in a flash. Beat me up, Scotty. But you know what? Part of following Jesus is learning to endure suffering. Think of Jesus' example of service. Think that the Lord of glory put on a towel around his waist, didn't he? And he washed his own followers' feet. Think of that. The man who himself breathed out stars. He was involved in creating every single thing that we see in this known universe, but he girded himself with a towel and washed the filthy feet of his disciples, one of whom was about ready to betray him to his death. Imagine. Think of his example of his faithfulness. You probably know that best in the sense that you know your sins better than anybody else here. You know the things that you say and think and do in private when no one else is watching. The only other person that knows that better than you is Jesus Christ. And yet, he's faithful to save you. Think of that. We're called on to follow him in his faithfulness. To stay faithful to people when they reject us. To love brothers and sisters when we don't get it in return. To pray for our enemies. To not give up on people. 
Think of his example of love, his patience. Again, this is something I struggle with, but I think it's something we have to walk in. We have to learn to follow Christ in his patience. Are we patient not just with others, but with ourselves? Are we gentle with ourselves when we trip up on this walk? Again, this patience is demonstrated best to me when I think of God's patience with me. Over my years and years and years of kicking my heels and wandering about doing my own thing or being lazy. God has been patient with me, hasn't he? He's been patient with you. Let's think of Jesus' patience. Let's be inspired to be more patient in life. His forgiveness and this as well. I think this is massively underpreached. Jesus' gentleness and his humility. This is so important in a world that undervalues gentleness. The things we value in leadership and in life are about dominance. They're about asserting oneself into the situation. Being a leader. Leading from the front, whereas Jesus modelled a totally different type of leadership and lifestyle. One of gentleness and humility. He suffered the little children to come to him. He didn't see it as an imposition when they ran to him, did they? He was in his place of ministry. And little children came to him, probably asking absurd questions like kids do. But Jesus put them on his lap and enjoyed their presence. He lived in the moment. Do we live in the moment? When we're with our families, and I'm preaching this to myself, are we sat on our phones? Do our kids get to be with us and talk to us? Do our parents and our family members and our friends really get to us? Are we moving in gentleness and humility? When we consider his purity and his prayer life, that Jesus lived perhaps the most active, busy three years ever documented in the history of humanity, didn't he? For 30 years, the massive proportion of his life, he was a carpenter. And we often forget this, don't we? Jesus lived in ignominity. He, he lived as a carpenter for the majority of his life. But in those three years of ministry, he crammed it in, didn't he? He packed it in. I think Spurgeon said he, he, he couldn't get his head around how Jesus had enough hours to do all that's documented in the Gospels during those three years, but he managed to do it. But at the same time, in all that busyness, he still had time to pray. He still disappeared off up the mountain when things got busy, didn't he? Do we follow Jesus' example in prayer? This is something else that we can follow in his example. I think when we consider these things, sometimes we can get a little bit overawed. Because our ability to walk in his footsteps, to be honest in the flesh, it's not enough, is it? It's not something that can really come from our natural abilities. But there's a clue in verse 5 as to how we're supposed to live in Christ's example. How we're supposed to obey these commands. Where does the strength and gumption come from for us as ordinary believers to follow Jesus? Well, verse 5 tells us it's through union with Christ. It says this, doesn't it? If we are in him, 
in him. The Christian lifestyle is not lived apart from Christ, it's lived in Jesus Christ. There's this spiritual, mystical union that exists between you and Jesus. You were baptized into his death, the Bible says. You were raised to new life with him and now you live in him. Your baptism was his baptism. Your death was his death. Your life is now his life. Our walking with Jesus isn't what earns us this union. It's not something that we can switch on and switch off. It exists right now. You are united with Christ and it's through that union that we're able to live and follow his example. And I don't think John's suggesting that we're going to be able to walk out this obedience impeccably. We're not going to be able to do it perfectly. Clearly he wouldn't be contradicting what he said earlier when he said if we say we have no sin, we lie, we deceive ourselves. Of course we're going to stumble. I heard a story of another preacher who explained this walk that we're being called out to do very well. He told the story of how as a young boy he used to help his dad clear the snow off of their drive. He lived in the north of the United States and every year they would get huge drifts of snow that would block the driveway and block the road leading up to the house. And his dad was his role model. He was everything that he wanted to be in life. And where they lived every winter, his dad would go out with a shovel and he'd begin to shovel the snow away from the door so that they could get access to the house. His dad would tap him on the shoulder after dinner and say, come on, son, we're going to clean the drive. And he'd walk out the door and he'd see his dad trudging off with broad, long footsteps into the snow. And as a boy, he'd try his best to put his feet in his dad's footsteps, often falling as these footprints were much further apart than he could manage to stretch. But the point is, the little boy was trying. He was doing his best to put his feet in his father's footprints. And I think that's what our obedience ought to look like. It's not that we're doing it perfectly, but that we're being consistent. There's a consistent and steady, occasionally bumpy ride towards emulating Jesus. John Calvin said, but there's no one who in everything keeps Jesus' commandments. There would thus be no knowledge of God in the world. To this I answer that the apostle is by no means inconsistent with himself, since he has shown before that all are guilty before God. He does not understand that those who keep his commandments wholly satisfy the law, but that they are such, they are striving according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in conformity with the will of God. For whenever scripture speaks of the righteousness of the faithful, it does not exclude the remission of sins, but on the contrary begins with it. So what he's saying is that there, there is a gentle uh, journey in the life of a believer towards holiness that it isn't going to be perfect becoming Christians not like a magic spell where we suddenly become absolutely holy is it there's a journey in our life towards holiness and I want to leave you with this that this lifestyle that we're called to has been called by many saints before a life coram deo you heard that before coram deo it's a life that is lived before the face of God, Coram Deo, before God. It's when we're aware of God's presence. 
Anybody read Brother Lawrence? Was it something, the, the presence of God? Yeah, Practicing the Presence of God, a fantastic book. And that pretty much says it. He was a pot washer in a monastery. But while he was washing his dishes, he was aware of the presence of God. Consciously aware of it. That's living Koram, Daya. We're aware of God's presence, even in all the banality of everyday life. We live our life from Jesus to Jesus and through Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? There's a, a, a reigning in of our brain when we run away from him every day. We rein it in and we refocus on Jesus. God is the source and the aim of our life. That's another sign that we truly are Christian. We're conscious of him in this moment right now. We live to please God, to love him. We lean on his grace when we inevitably stumble. We pull ourselves up in the spirit and go again. So brothers and sisters, I just call us, let's examine ourselves today. Do we find in ourselves that there's a striving towards holiness? Is there a wrestling match against the flesh? That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Is the example of Jesus something that you aim at? You know, for me, perhaps the best proof of this journey in my life, this obeying of Christ's commandments, is when I'm disappointed by my behavior. Because when I'm disappointed by my behavior and I have to say sorry, I know that I'm aiming at something. I know that Jesus is bringing conviction into my life. So that's the sure sign. If you experience that, great. That's good. If your conscience is pricked when you tell a white lie or when you let a naughty word slip out your mouth, that's a good sign, brothers and sisters, that there is an example in your life that you're trying to follow. That's the evidence that I'm trying to keep Jesus' commandments, even imperfectly. So yeah, there's an assurance for us. There's a confidence, a certainty that we can have in our salvation. Isn't that good news? That we don't have to worry for the whole of our lives, whether we really know Jesus. Up until the day of our death, we're not worrying and wondering, do we really know Christ? We're able to know that we know him. There's security for us. It's this, if we know that there's a love of God in our hearts, Yes, it occasionally waxes and wanes. But if there's a love of God in our hearts that manifests itself through a love of the Bible and following the example of Jesus, that is what the basis of our assurance rests on. The one who says that they love God but never has any interest in picking up their Bible and who never ever feels remorseful over their sin or bad behavior is in danger of judgment. It would be better for that person to just reject the name of Christian altogether and just be honest with who they are. As John says, the person who does that is a liar. If there's no love in your heart towards God or towards his children, or towards scripture, then we've got to examine whether our relationship with God is actually real. And that's what I'd solemnly ask you to do today, is to examine yourself. Are those things alive in you? Is there a forming of your lifestyle towards Christ? Is there a love of scripture? Is there a love of God? Does it manifest itself in times of devotion, of worship, of study, 
of reading his word, of watching YouTube videos. Even that can be a type of devotion. These things help us to give, sorry, these things help us to have assurance that our faith is real. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer today is that you would begin to shine a torch into our hearts right now through the Holy Spirit and reveal to us the evidence of our faith. Encourage us. Show us, Lord God, where, yeah, there have been times where we've been perhaps disappointed in our behavior and show us that 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 means a good thing that shows us Lord that there's a spiritual activity in our heart that's forming our lives into the example of Christ I also pray Lord God that you would put Jesus example before us this week you know for some of us maybe it's Jesus example of gentleness and humility that really needs to be speaking to us this week Perhaps it's Jesus' example of purity that's going to be brought before you by the Spirit right now. Maybe there's a calling for you into a greater level of purity, of honoring God with your body, with your words, with your deeds. I don't know, but let's dwell on the example of Jesus this week. Let's be encouraged to follow him. Not through a sense of condemnation, we pray, but through a conviction of the Holy Spirit through love and Lord I pray that as we do these things as we begin to love you that there would be a perfecting of that love in our hearts yes towards you Father and also towards our brothers and sisters in Christ I pray that for me as well Lord God there'd be a real stirring in my heart to love my brothers and sisters more to treat them with gentleness humility and patience and charity. We pray that in your mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Praise God. Um, Pip, would you mind leading us in another song? Is that all right? I think we're going to sing one final song in worship. And I'd like for you uh, today as we leave, I'll send out the notes later, but I think for me what I'm going to do is I'm honestly going to have a look through some of these examples that Jesus sets and I'm just going to let them hit me. I'm going to let them hit me a little bit and I'm going to be honest about where I feel the Lord might be leading me to grow uh, in obedience to his commandments. And I just encourage you to do the same. When I send the notes out, there's a little section, just one bullet point. Maybe I'll find a way to cleverly um, put that in an easy to digest, uh, easy to digest thing in the WhatsApp group. But is there an area of this walk where you really feel the Lord might be saying, yeah, come on, you can, you can grow in this area. Let, let's challenge one another to do that, shall we, uh, this week. Well, let's, uh, let's finish off with a bit of praise and worship. Praise? Pra- not praise and worship. Praise and worship. Wonderful. Thank you, Pippa. Bless you.